We have two meetings every month as elders. One meeting is called the Shepherd's Meeting. And all we do is work through the prayer request of our church family. And it generally takes about two and a half hours. And we just spend two hours or more in prayer because we never want to forget that the greatest uh, value of a shepherd is that he cares for the sheep. Jesus, the great shepherd, said that that a hired hand will run when the wolf comes. But a true shepherd under Christ, a, uh, a true shepherd will, will lay down his life for the sheep. You've got to know the sheep before you'll lay your life down for them. And so, uh, really, even those of you here tonight, uh, if you have requests, write them on a piece of paper, give them to me. Uh, generally, there's always uh, Scott Walker normally is here. He and Deb are not here tonight. They're both uh, not feeling all that well. But uh, so let's just uh, keep them in prayer too. But but we typically will take your requests and we'll we'll put them in the right hands and lift them to the Lord. Well, tonight we're going to be in in First Samuel chapter two. So we're moving forward in our study. This chapter is a little longer, and so I'm not sure that we'll make our way all the way through the chapter. But uh, we'll let the Lord kind of guide us that way and see what happens. Let's begin as we always do with a word of prayer. Father, tonight we come with hearts that are filled with you. We, that's why we gathered. We didn't come just to see people, just to hang out. We hopefully didn't come just out of a sense of duty or perfunctory duty. Uh, Lord, we come here on Thursday nights because we value and love the Word of God. And we desire to grow in the Word. We desire to measure our lives by the Word of God. That's the only way that a, a, a man or a woman can truly experience the blessings of heaven is by how we walk by the promises of God. So tonight, Lord, fill us up. Just fill us to the overflow that we might leave this, this room and not only take in what we learn, but share what we learn with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we pick up our story where Hannah was barren, and if you remember from chapter 1, she sought the Lord in her sorrow and made a promise to God that if He would gift her a son, then she would gift him back to the Lord after he was weaned. And uh, so, of course, God honored her petition, and little Samuel was born. Samuel is the last of the judges. He's the last of the judges. So you have the book of Judges, and there's like 12 judges in the book of Judges, and then you have uh, Samuel, who's the final judge. He also, though, serves in a capacity of priesthood. Even though he's not from the Levitical tribe, we'll read as we go further in our study uh, that Samuel does function in a priestly duty. And so that's going to become important at the end of the chapter where God gives a prophecy, and Samuel is part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. But anyway, uh, so we enter chapter 2, we find Hannah handing the boy, her son, who has now been weaned. Uh, average women in that day would wean their children over a three-year period. Uh, some would go longer. So we don't know how old Samuel was exactly, but he was a young little boy. And she's about to hand him over to the priest, uh, the high priest, Eli, so that he can be raised in the house of the Lord. He can serve the Lord all the days of his life. 
That was the promise that she made, and she's keeping her promise. So after handing over her child to Eli, she then does something that is, I think, totally unexpected. Um, if I were in her position, I don't think I would have reacted naturally this way. But she is a godly woman. And so uh, she actually offers up a prayer to the Lord. As she, as she hands him off, she begins to pray. But it's a prayer of exaltation and praise to God. Now, ladies, you, those of you who have born children, uh, and, and if you had made that promise to God that you would hand your child over after they're weaned, I would imagine in the moment in the day that you're handing your child over, that that would be a, a solemn moment. It would be a moment of great uh, sadness in the sense that you're not going to have that child in your home to watch him grow and to nurture him in his growth. You're literally leaving him with the high priest to let him grow up in the temple, in the tabernacle. And, and yet, what she does as she's handing him over, she breaks out in a prayer of praise and exaltation to God. Now, just think about that. That is a godly woman. Interestingly, before we expound on the prayer that Hannah prayed, I think there's an interesting fact about her prayer that we, should, we shouldn't overlook. You might want to write this down, but Hannah's prayer is very, very similar to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. Remember after Mary was told that she was going to bring forth the Son of God? And she breaks out in what is now called the Magnificat. And she gives this great praise to God that He would choose her among all women to bring forth the Son of God. And it's interesting here. The reason for bringing this to mind is the similarity found in these two prayers. Now, Hannah lived approximately a thousand years before Mary lived on the earth. But Mary was a teenager, by the way, was a young student of the Word of God. When she would go to temple or to the synagogue, she would listen to what was being said. She would take those scriptures into her heart. She would absorb them. And in many cases, the young people would memorize. The reason was because they didn't have copies of the scrolls of the Old Testament to take home. We have a Bible, so we don't think much of it. Back in that day, when you go to temple, that's it. You better listen, pay attention, take notes, whatever. And that's how she would handle this. Her prayer is almost, it's just eerily similar to Hannah's prayer. That's not a bad thing. She probably memorized Hannah's prayer. And, and that's kind of exciting when you think about that Mary paid that much attention and Hannah had that kind of influence. There's a reason why uh, Hannah was so godly. And Hannah prayed this beautiful prayer on a, tough, on a difficult day, not knowing that a thousand years later that prayer would have deep, rich meaning to a young teenage girl who God chose to bring forth the Son of God. I like that, that Mary really paid attention when she attended synagogue. Now, Here's Hannah's prayer to the Lord. Let's look at it. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. So Hannah's depth of commitment and love for God should humble us 
as we listen to what she's saying in this prayer. She's offering a prayer of exaltation on the day that she made the biggest sacrifice of her entire life. This would be a day when the flesh would cry out because of the separation between mother and child. But she exalts the Lord. My heart exalts in the Lord. To exalt, by the way, is to show triumph or jubilation. That's what the word exalt means. To show triumph or jubilation. This is not an exaltation because she's leaving her son. Who would want to exalt leaving your child? Okay? Uh, she's exalting God. When she thinks about the loss, I'm sure it was real and painful to think about. But in the moment, she realized this is simply the fulfillment of my promise to God. He kept His promise. I will return to Him what He so generously gifted to me. And as she's doing this, it just overwhelms her, and she just wants to bring out praise and, and, and admiration for God, for who He is. Uh, she then said, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The horn is often used as a picture of strength in the Bible. The psalmist said in Psalm 92.10, write it down if you'd like, 92.10, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Oftentimes they would know the strength of an animal by the size of their horns. And so this is because the strength of an ox or a steer could be expressed by its horns. So Hannah spoke of strength and power being exalted in the Lord. And she says, my mouth derides my enemies. In other words, now she has something to say, finally. You see, Peninnah, who was Elkanah's other wife, he not only had Hannah as his wife, but he had another woman. We talked about polygamy and how in the Bible it's never, it's never uh, accepted in the eyes of God. It's not what God wants for His people. But it was so common back then to take more than one wife. But Peninnah, the other wife, would always come at and chide and, and was very curt in her words toward Hannah because Hannah couldn't bear a child. And she would always do it at the time of the great offering that they would bring to the Lord in, at Shiloh when they would sit together as a family and all of Hannah's children, or I mean all of Peninnah's kids sitting around and Hannah sitting alone, no children. And she would give her the looks and make the little statements. You know what it's like at family gatherings, how certain members of the family know how to get under the skin of other... Oh, none of y'all have ever experienced that. But you know what I'm talking about, right? So... Hannah now says, uh, hey, that's all behind me. That's all behind me. And she's like, uh, I no longer have to bite my tongue when Peninnah speaks. Why? Because God blessed her with a son. A better translation of that when it says, my mouth derides my enemies, a better translation is, I smile at my enemies. What they mean for harm what they mean to hurt me by, God has turned into jubilation for me. I'm able to smile. That's really cool. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And her rival used to provoke her. That would be Peninnah. 
her, she would provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. But now, Hannah's been justified by God. She can smile. She's no longer the one who's being made fun of. The latter part of verse 1, because I rejoiced in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Okay? Now, Hannah is now jubilant because of what the Lord has done. I rejoice in your salvation. God, you have set me free from the sadness and the sorrow and the grief and the heaviness of barrenness. You have set me free. Now I rejoice. But then she, in verse 2, does something that's very interesting. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry, it, it will make sense to you. But she says three things using different words, but saying the exact same thing all three times. And what that's called is a repetitive parallelism. A repetitive parallelism. Let me give it to you. There is none holy like the Lord. By the way, holy means separated. It means separate. So there's none like the Lord. But she said it, none holy like the Lord. Okay? And then she said, for there is none besides you. Well, she just said the same thing using different words. Then she said, there is no rock like our God. Again, she's saying the same thing a third time, only she's using different words. This was very very common in Hebrew poetry. They would repeat themselves, saying the same thing over, because they didn't, use the, they didn't use the exclamation points and the underlining and the bold print. They, they would repeat it, and they would repeat it, saying the same exact thing in different words. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Listen to this now. This is Hannah in her prayer, and she's almost speaking. You, you have to know that she has penina in her thoughts as she's saying these words. But quite honestly, what she's saying is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just for Penina. This is something that all of us can learn from. She didn't realize it, but she was speaking to all of us. So here's what it says. Look at this. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. So this is the best reason to forsake pride in our lives. This is the very best reason. Why? Because compared to God, you know nothing. That's what she just said. You and I know nothing compared to God. He is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The direct reference is to Peninnah, but you and I can take this in, and we should and we're, if we're wise, we will receive this tonight. Pride can be expressed in many ways, but much of the time it's expressed with our mouth. It comes out of our, our pride finds its way out. Does it not? Have you not had an experience, and as if you've only had one, um, where you open your mouth, you said it, and you're, as it was coming out, you're like, oh, I want to take that back. Anybody here relate to that? Pride speaking through your mouth. It's coming out. It would be better, listen, it would be better if proud people just didn't talk so much. That's what she said. 
Talk no more. You're better off not speaking. Kind of like what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So an idiot will be, will be viewed as intelligent if he just doesn't open his mouth. You can pull it off. Those of us who don't have a lot of good sense, just stay quiet and you can fool everybody. Amen. All right. Aren't you glad that the Word of God is so applicable for us? Well, that's the same thing that she's saying. If you'll just remain quiet, people will actually think you're humble. But the minute that mouth opens, oh, now they know who you really are. This is such good stuff here. This is, she says, if, so verse 4, the, ba, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. She's now going to give you the paradoxes of God. Remember, she just established that God is all-knowing. And now she shares these wonderful paradoxes. We should be humble before God because He knows how to humble the strong. Those who were full of, uh, full of, of, of themselves are now begging. And she who has many children has become feeble. That's what Hannah is saying here. If we are strong or exalted now, we should keep humble because the Lord can change our place and our position very quickly. Amen? How many of you have experienced that? Where you got a little too cocky, you got a little too arrogant, you got a little too haughty, thinking you were something, and the Lord brought you back down. And those who are feeble, those who are weak and who are humble, it's amazing how the Lord will lift them up. So God both brings down and He raises up. The, the, the key to that is understanding it's the Lord who does it. It's the Lord who does it. It's the Lord to a, pride, a proud person. It's the Lord who humbles them or breaks them. And to a humble person, it's the Lord who in due season lifts them up. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. That's interesting, another paradox. You think you own everything, you'll never have want. You, in the end, end up being the one looking for food. And the one who never had much, because they were trusting in the Lord and they were humble and they were broken before Him, God provided for them and blessed them. These are wonderful truths that you and I should hold on to. So just remain humble before God because He knows how to exalt the weak. If we're weak or we're in a low place now, just continue in a state of humility before God because He will lift you up in due season. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Do you get the general idea here? Listen to me. Please hear this tonight. Get out of this name it, claim it, frame it, declare it, all this stuff that people are doing today. All of this is the work of the Lord, not man. Man does not determine those things. God has a will that's higher than any man's will. We're not to be people that walk around thinking that we command God like He's a genie in the bottle. Rub it three times and tell God what you need. And there are preachers today who live in this state of prosperity preaching, and all they're doing is fleecing people. Make, you know what they're doing? They're, they're appealing to people who want more. 
And so people give because I want, I want to get. And the whole thing is a house of cards. I'm telling you, this is what the Scripture says. I didn't come up with this. This is what the Word of God says. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. This, this woman, Hannah, is fully aware who's really in charge. She just had a baby that she couldn't have. If anybody knew it was God, it was Hannah. And she's just saying in this prayer, I'm, I apply what I learned in this barrenness and giving birth to a son. I'm applying it to every aspect of my life. God's in control of my whole life. The greatest prayer you pray is not you bringing your request to God. The greatest prayer is when your request lines up with God's will. If I could say it this way, if you want to really learn how to pray, I mean, I've read, I've read so many books on prayer, and I love, I've got a whole uh, shelf on my bookcase at home. It's nothing but books on prayer. And I'm telling you the truth. The greatest prayers are when we pray God's prayer. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to do? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where in that do you get this, this idea that you declare what God's going to do? I'm sorry. You're taking little pieces of Scripture in other places and you're taking them out of context to build your ministry, to build your life. But the Lord's will is suffering. And you're leading, the worst part is, you're leading other people away from God. And you don't even know it. You're appealing to their sensuality. When I say that, I'm not referring to sexuality. We often just connect those two all the time, don't we? Sensual, sexual. They're not the same. Sensuality, in essence, is nothing more than it's a focus or a passion on the five senses. And so there's people who are just eat up with feeding their senses. And so these preachers come with this message that tickles their ears. And Hannah's telling us in the Old Testament, this is 3,000 years ago, folks, and she's saying, listen, God's in control of everything. The best thing you can do is stay humble before God and allow God to do His work. Let God do His work. He will, look, look what she says. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. The Lord walks with us. He, he, he will see you through whatever you're facing. That's what she just said. The Lord will guard your feet. He guards the feet of the faithful. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. 
There's some pretty powerful people on the earth. But they will not prevail in the end. Their power will crumble. God will make a mockery of them. They're fools for thinking that somehow they had the world by the tail. They, they don't. They're going to find out these wealthy, super wealthy that... Look, not all wealthy people take that position, by the way. There's some godly wealthy people. So don't, don't think I'm attacking wealthy, okay? Um, but there's a lot... Of, but Jesus made the statement, right? He said, it's really tough to love God when you have a lot of money. Really tough. But there are those who can do it. But a lot of the wealthy, they're so into what they're doing, and we've got it all figured out, and I've got life just the way it ought to be, and, and I've got more money than I know what to do with, and so I can handle anything. And God's going to humble them in the end. He's going he's to break them. And they're going to realize they were nothing more than a pawn on his board. That's all they were. Wait till you look further into this chapter. We're going to see that very thing. This, I'm telling you, this is a sobering chapter for us to consider. So he says this, she says this in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Circle that word king, if you will. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah just said that God has a king. Well, wait a minute. There are no kings over Israel yet. When she said this, Israel wasn't even desiring a king. Where did she come up with that? And exalt the horn of, of the king's anointed, of the Lord's anointed, which is the king. Understand that at the time, Israel didn't have a king. So what's going on here? What is she talking about? I'll tell you what she's talking about. She's looking ahead to Messiah, the Lord's anointed. This is the first time in Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, where Messiah is referred to as the, as the Lord's anointed. The first time, right here. Isn't that awesome how God... He's so far ahead. He's already, he's, this thing was already planned out, and he had her say that. By the way, this is the first place. So, therefore, that means every time you see it after, guess where they got it from? Hannah. As the Scripture was coming into play, David was referring back to, he was reading what was written in 1 Samuel, where he had... Those who kept the word of God share with him audibly, verbally, the words of what was happening in 1 Samuel. He learned it. Listen, Nathan learned it. Isaiah learned it. Daniel learned it. All of the succeeding prophets learned it. In the New Testament, the apostles learned this. All of them are quoting 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. It started with a woman who came into this deep hunger for God to move in her life, and God did, and she turns around and she exalts and praises Him, and God gives her all these things to put in her prayer that for centuries later, they would be used, revealing, fulfilling prophecy about Messiah. Pretty cool. In fact, in Ze uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, quoted Hannah 
in Luke chapter 1, verse 69, when he prophetically called Jesus a horn of salvation. He got that from Hannah. Quoting from 1 Samuel 2.10, Then Elkanah, verse 11, Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So just as she promised, Hannah brought Samuel to the temple and left him there to be trained for ministry, for the Lord's work, for the Lord's service. And as a young boy, he remembered there to be, uh, he remembered that there uh, was this ministry that God had called him to. God had told his mother that this would happen. His mother asked the Lord for a child. He knows he's that child. He knows he's growing in the Lord. And it's interesting. There's a now a, a, a comparison that's made in this chapter between Samuel, who was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That's the verse we just read, verse 11. And, and Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, in verse 12. Look at that. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Look at this. This is not by chance that the verse before, it says that the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the contrast. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. By the way, the boy is young, and yet the Scripture canonizes him as ministering before the Lord, the Lord ministering to him and him ministering to the Lord. He was doing things in the temple, in the tabernacle, that would prepare for the great feast. He was, God was allowing him, under Eli's tutelage, to begin serving the Lord. At the same time, two priests, the sons of the, of the high priest, are worthless men. <laughs> some things never change. We, 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 can, we can get some worthless preachers today. We can get some worthless prophets today, some worthless teachers today. Literally, the ancient Hebrew calls these two men, if you want to see that word worthless in the Hebrew, they, they were called sons of Belial. Belial was a god for the pagans. These boys are nothing more than sons of Belial, a pagan god. That's, that's what the scripture says about them. Now that's a significant problem. Why? Because the sons of Eli were in line to succeed their father Eli, who's the high priest. One of them is going to become the high priest. But look at verse 12. It gets worse. Not only are they worthless men, look at verse 12. They did not know the Lord. They're priests, and they don't know the Lord. Even though their father Eli knew the Lord, knowledge is not passed along, you know, uh, genetically. They had to personally know the Lord for themselves. Now, when it says they didn't know the Lord, it doesn't mean that they're ignorant, that there is a God. That's not it at all. They knew there was a God. They just don't know Him. We, look, it's, it's, it's the same way, okay, think about it this way. You, all of us have great-grandparents that have passed on. Probably everybody in this room, your great-grandparents have passed on. And you know them through what your family has said about them. It's possible when you were really little, you met them and you, you saw some things about them that you liked, but you don't know them. You only know about them through the, the, the words of others. That's what we're talking about here. These, 
men didn't know the Lord like their father did. They only know about God. They only know about Him. If you want to write it down, just to go a little deeper for the Bible students that are here, uh, the word is, gino, is ginoso, ginosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O, ginosko. It means to know generally. But there's another word for, for to know. That's to know generally. The word uh, epigenosko, E-P-I-G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Put an E-P-I on the front of it, epigenosko. That means to know wholly and wholeheartedly, to know thoroughly. Hopefully you have epigenosko understanding or knowledge about your spouse. You only have gnosko knowledge about your great-great-grandparents, right? That's the difference. They did not know the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas knew the Lord in a general sense, but they didn't know him well. They weren't acquainted thoroughly with him. Now, verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, uh, and he would thrust it into the pan of, or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what the, they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now he's talking about the custom of the priest. So when a family would bring, just to explain this, give you a little background on it. When a family would bring an animal for sacrifice, again, remember Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was kept, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where you always came in that period of time in history in order to make sacrifice to God for your sins. You went to Shiloh. You didn't go to Jerusalem. You went to Shiloh. And so here's what you would do. You'd travel with your family a great distance. Everybody was required to travel to the, the great feast. And so you would travel, and uh, when you got there, a uh, family would bring an animal for sacrifice, and they would bring it to the temple, or the tabernacle actually, and a portion was given to God, a portion was given to the priest, and a portion was kept by the one who brought the offering. You would feed your family with your portion. Now... According to other passages in the Old Testament, the priest would always receive his portion of the breast and the shoulder of the animal. That was his portion, the breast and the shoulder. But now, some 400 years after the law of Moses came, the priests, their custom changed. They, they changed the custom. These guys, Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't take the breast and the shoulder. These guys went after the portion of the meat that they, that they wanted. Whatever they wanted, that's what they took, okay? Uh, they took whatever the fork brought forth. Well, you can get down in the pot, and you're looking as you're stirring the pot with the fork, and you find what you like. Oh, here's what I want. That's what they were doing, okay? The fat, understand this too, verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. Now, this is not what God prescribed. This is what these two worthless priests were doing. Before they would boil the meat, 
they would go ahead while the meat was raw and they would select the meat. They would get the choice pieces. By the way, before the fat was burned, the fat was the portion that went to God. The first sacrifice or the first part, the first portion always went to God and it was always the fat. And that is, by the way, where the flavor is, right? Well, that's what God wanted. He wanted that sweet aroma coming from His people, okay? So these guys aren't allowing the fat to be burned. So basically what we're reading here is these two worthless priests received their part before the Lord got His part. And they were taking parts that had the fat still on it, which belonged to the Lord, okay? Talk about pride. Talk about disobedience to God. Talk about putting yourself as a priest ahead of the people that you're supposed to serve. Verse 15, latter part, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. That's what they would say. Well, why did they want the raw meat? Well, uh, maybe because then they could prepare it however they wanted to. Well, I don't want you to boil it because we might want to prepare it differently. We might, we might roast it differently. But I think it's more than that. I, I, I kind of think that it's possible that these guys wanted the raw meat because then they could turn around and go to the market and sell off the meat and pocket the money. So now think about this. People bringing their animal to be sacrificed to the Lord. People are trying to worship God in the prescribed way that God shared or told them. These guys are ripping them off, taking the raw meat and going to the market and pocketing the money from it. These guys are charlatans. These guys are ripping off God's people. Okay? Someone once said, some ministers have a wealth of thought, others only have thoughts of wealth. Well, that's the case here. The latter are the two sons of Eli. Now, this is an age-old problem, an age-old sin among spiritual leaders or religious leaders. Okay? The bottom line is they would line their pocket. We have today people who are spiritual leaders, religious leaders, who fleece God's people. I remember back when I was a young man, I had just become a senior pastor, so I'm just trying to learn and grow. And you talk about being humble and broken. I, I had no clue what I was doing. So I was just trying to let the Lord guide me, and I was calling anybody and everybody who I respected and asking them how to handle things. And so we had this gospel quartet that somebody told me about. They said they'd like for them to come to our church. And so I thought, okay, let's do that. So we invited this group to come. They show up in this big Greyhound bus. I mean, a beautiful, nice bus. They climb off. They go in there, set up their equipment and all. And then one of them came over to me and said, Now, preacher, tonight we'll take the offering. And right then and there, you know, the flag went up. But I'm thinking, okay, I mean, they're just going to take an offering. Uh, and didn't give it a second thought. Well, I wish I had. Because they fleeced our congregation. They worked them over. They used every, every tool in the book, man, trying to make them feel guilty. You need to give, support the Lord's work, and blah, blah, blah. And they just went on and on and on. 
And never again did I have a gospel group come into my church. I know there's a lot of good ones, but I'm just telling you, that turned me off when that happened. And if I gave the name, everybody in the room would know them, and some of you who've been close to the ministry already know who I'm talking about. Anyway, okay. So, so these prosperity preachers, false teachers, prophets, pastors who play on people's emotions, they're, they're fleecing the people of God. They'll pay with a great price because these guys are giving them a line and they reel them in and people give them all this money. And that money, either it wasn't for them, God wanted the people to keep that money for their own budget, or it was money that would go to the church, to the Lord's work. Verse 16, and if, the, and if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. These guys, not, they're just corrupt to the core. Now they're going to threaten you and even use violence if necessary to get what they want from you. So the greed of Eli's sons was so bad that they didn't hesitate to use violence. Modern-day false teachers will do the same thing in a different way. They might not threaten you with violence uh, from their own hand, but they, they'll, they'll threaten you by telling you that something terrible is going to happen if you don't give. You're going to be cursed of God if you don't give. Hey, we live under grace, folks. You will never hear me say that from the pulpit. We don't even talk about offering. We, there's a box in the back. We tell you where it is, and that's it. The rest is between you and God. I don't, I, look, I give myself, our staff gives, just like you. But I don't know who gives what. I don't touch the money. I have, no, 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 I, I have nothing to do with the money in the church. I keep my nose in the Word of God and in caring and shepherding the flock. That's my role. And we're not going to ever do that to you, fleece you for money. If God brings a request to us that we sense, man, we all sense we have a, a, a unity in our spirit that God wants us to raise funds for this, this individual or this situation, we'll say that to you. But that's it. And then what you give, you give or you don't give, that's between you and the Lord. We, we move on. And you know what? i got to say, our church is not hurting for money because we don't make money the, the focus. We're, we're, God's blessed us. Did you know that the first four months of this year, our giving was higher than the same four months last year before COVID? That's the Lord. That's all I can say about it. Nobody came to you with a heavy hand, oh, People aren't coming to church like they did, and boy, we really need your help. And when you've got to beg people for the Lord's ministry, it's probably not the Lord's ministry. It's your ministry. The Lord will always provide for His ministry. I believe that. All right, we've ridden that long enough. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Oh, it breaks my heart to hear it. These guys were so wicked, and what they did to the people left the people not wanting to give to God, not wanting to go to, to the tabernacle to make a sacrifice because they knew they were going to get worked over by these charlatans. 
So what is the worst part about their sin? Well, they were so greedy and intimidating to God's people that it made many not want to worship God. They hindered people from worshiping God. By the way, that's why Jesus chased them out of the temple, the money changers. They were hindering people from worshiping God. They were saying, you need to buy this pigeon, this, this turtle dove, because that one you brought, is that God would never accept that. And you got that out on the open market and you paid 15 cents for it. For $15, you can have something that's worthy of God. That's why Jesus chased them out. And that's what these guys were doing. Now we're going to see the contrast between the evil character of Eli's sons and the purity of Samuel's service before the Lord in behalf of the people. So look, look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Okay, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. See, a child uh, would normally not serve in this capacity that he was serving in. But he wore a garment of a priest. He was not a priest, but he wore a garment that spoke of reverence and beauty. It was supposed to be something that when the priest wore it, it told people how awesome God is. And here he is wearing this garment. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So once a year when they'd go to sacrifice, she would, Hannah would bring another new garment. The boy grew a little bit more. Give him a new garment, okay? Verse 20, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord, God, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. <laughs> Amen. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. You bet the Lord visited Hannah, huh? Three sons, two daughters beyond Samuel. God will never be a debtor to anyone. Hannah could never say to the Lord, I gave you my son, but what did I get in return? Man, did God bless Hannah back. That's just true. It's a law of reciprocity. Given it shall be given to you. And that's not, forget about money. Take money out of the picture. In anything, in your time, your energy, your testimony, your talents, whatever you give to the Lord, you'll, God will always give back more than you can give. Amen? Now we learned about another moral sin of Eli's sons. And these guys are knuckleheads. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So these guys are sexually immoral at the steps of the temple. And the high priest knew about it. It's possible that the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle were in some way workers of the house of the Lord. In fact, Exodus 38 verse 3, or, I'm sorry, verse 8, Exodus 38, 8, refers to the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So these guys had, had wooed these women into sexual favors. These women were there serving the Lord. Or maybe that's not the case. The passage also suggests uh, that uh, they had assembled, these two guys had assembled a troop of prostitutes who would come and hang out at the temple steps. 
And as the men would come up to make sacrifice, they would be wooed by these women. And these two men were like pimps. And they had these women as well. I mean, this thing, just think about this. This is 3,000 years ago. The sin in the camp under the nose of the high priest. It's his own boys who were doing this. And so, listen to this dad. Now we're going to find out the real problem behind Hophni and Phinehas. Okay? Or I shouldn't say the real problem. Part of the problem. Okay? Here it is. And he said to them, this is Eli, why do you do such things? <laughs> why do you do such? That's an understandable question, but, but it's a needless question. Because any answer they give is a bad answer, right? So why ask? If you know there's no good, good reason, why would you ask, why do you do these things? What they needed instead from their father, the high priest, was to be held accountable for their grievous sins, but that's not what happened. Eli said to them, look at verse 23, For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. He's more concerned about how it makes him look. You're giving us a bad name, boys. Oh, God help us. Eli did about the worst thing a parent can possibly do by trying to correct his children, his boys, by just talking to them. All he did was whine about what they did wrong, but he never took the necessary steps to correct the problem. Parents would be much better off today, in our day, if they would yell less and act more. Stop talking so much. Just go ahead and bring action to the children. If they disobey, there ought to be an action that follows the disobedience. Just do it. And the reason why some kids keep doing what they're doing is because there is no action. It's just talk. Oh, i got to hear Dad with that 20-minute that talk, you know, again, that lecture he's going to give me. We'd be in a whole different nation if we had fathers in the home in our inner cities, 75% of all children in the inner city are, are, are fatherless. And if the parents that are in the home would actually bring some action into their discipline and not just talk. Okay? Talking only goes so far. It only goes so far. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So, in other words, Eli's saying, if you sin against a man, you go to court. You know, there's a way to deal with the matter. But if you sin against God, you have no defense. Now, this is Old Testament. Remember now, aren't you glad that Jesus Christ went to the cross and He paid the price for your sin? Now, you can go to someone when you sin. You can go to your Father in heaven through the Son. Amen? And our, the Son is forever representing you before the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Eli didn't understand what God had in store for you and I. In 1 John 2.1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. That ought to give a, you ought to want to give a shout. I just woke some of you up. Man, that excites me to think that my sins are forgiven. 
that I've got an advocate. Eli didn't, they didn't have an advocate back then. You're in a different position altogether. Verse 25, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will, oh, this, this is, is going to shake some of you, your theology. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, when you read that on the surface, what you just read is you read that these boys didn't listen, didn't repent, because the Lord already chose to kill them. That's not true. That's why you don't just read something on the surface. You have to bring the full character of God into Scripture. You have to understand the whole counsel of God. And what he's saying here, what's being said here is this, that God knew that these boys would never repent. They were so wicked. The Bible says the heart's deceitful above all things who can know it. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit can convict and bring, you know, bring us to a place of, of repentance. God knew these boys would never repent. Therefore, He put them to death. And there are times, let me say this, there are times where God hands you over. That's what Paul said, speaking of the ungodly in Romans chapter 1, where God li literally hands over to a person who is disobedient, who has no desire to change. He gives them more of what they want. He gives them more of what they want. And they go even deeper into their sin. That's why it says that He handed them over to a reprobate mind, which means basically they no longer have the capacity to think right. I think we've got some politicians who no longer have the capacity to think right. Where now right to them is wrong and wrong to them is right. They've turned it inside out, upside down. They've turned into perversion what God brought order to this nation and to this world. They've taken it and perversed it. And that's what God knew of these boys. That's why God said, I want you to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. Why? Because God knew that later down the line, if the Amalekites lived, there would be an attempt by an Amalekite to completely wipe out the entire nation of Israel. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read the book of Esther. And when you study the, those who were against the Lord, read their genealogy. And you'll find the one that was most wanting to take out Israel was a Amalekite. God knew they would not change. So He said, take out the men, the women, the children, and the animals. Obviously, the animals weren't wicked. Why take out the animals? As a picture for Israel, don't be among them. Don't be anywhere around them. And that's what Timothy tells us in the last days. You're going to have all these men who are scoffers and, and liars. And, 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 and he goes on and says, 
Avoid such people. Avoid them. So that's what's happening here. Verse 25, but they would not listen to the voice of the Father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God saw that they were corrupt men who were beyond repair, so He judged them. And when it says, for it was the Lord, Lord's will to put them to death, it simply means that God's des He desired justice for those two boys. It was time to judge them because there was no opportunity for grace for those two boys. Then if you look at verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued. Every time it talks about the wickedness of Eli's sons, it comes back in comparison, right? And talks about little Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Is there another place in the Bible where that same phraseology is used for somebody? Jesus Christ. That's right. So Hophni and Phinehas were bad guys who would die prematurely. Samuel, on the other hand, kept growing in the Lord, but not just in the Lord. He grew in favor with, with man as well. I think a lot of our teenagers today and even younger people, um, I think they have this mistaken idea that if they really follow the Lord, that it's going to end poorly for them. And they're, they're, you know, only bad things will happen. At school, I'll get beat up and blah, 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 blah. And, and yes, I think we need to be honest with our kids and say, if you walk with the Lord, you will be persecuted. There's no question, it's going to happen. But what they're not seeing, because maybe they haven't developed enough of a faith yet to understand it, is what the Lord will do in their behalf, even giving them favor with men on the earth. That's what God does. When you're obedient to God and you're faithful to God, God then comes in and He's able to do things in your behalf because of your faithfulness to Him. Will you be perfect? Yes, 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 yes. But you will also be blessed. And I, I look back in my life and there's so many times, so many times that I saw that where God's favor, that He gave me favor in situations that I knew that I didn't deserve or I knew that that person had no clue what was going on in my life and, and where I was at and what my need was and how God just brought them to me. God gave me favor with people when I wasn't even looking to, to get it because I wanted to be obedient to the Lord in something and do it the right way, and then God blessed. Uh, we, we wanted, we were, our little family was growing, and we had just had a third child. Mark was just a little baby, and I had been looking for about six months for a car, and finally um, we, we were driving a little Honda Accord, so we had two you know, seats in the back for the girls, um, but now with Mark, we were in trouble. And so I knew we needed a van, and I really liked this Toyota van back then, so this is way back. And so I just began to uh, check the paper regularly and pray and give it to the Lord. Lord, you know what we can afford and what will fit the budget. And, and, and I saw on a Sunday after church, I went home and after lunch I was just with the paper and I looked Back in the day when we all checked the paper for classifieds, remember that? <laughs> that day's gone. Um, we're dating ourselves. I'm dating myself. And, uh, and there was a Toyota van in Stewart, Florida. I was living in Palm Beach Gardens. And I called the person up, and, and I said, hey, and those vans went quick. The used ones went quick back then. And I said, hey, do you, do you happen to still have that van? Is it still for sale? Oh, yes. We just came back from a two-week vacation, and, we, and so we just got home today. And yes, it's still for sale. 
Oh, wonderful. I'd love to drive up and see it. Okay, great. Come on up. Well, I brought Rini and my, my, my girls and little Mark, and we got there, and uh, uh, the people came out. They lived in a gated community. Uh, he was a former doctor out of Michigan, and every two years he would take and either trade in or sell a vehicle to get a new one. And so um, I said, well, that's, we looked at it, really liked it. You know, that's, a, that's really what I want, but I'll just be honest with you. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm on a limited budget, and so I don't mean to insult you, but th this is what I can pay. He just backed off. He goes, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a minister. I mean, I wasn't going to tell him that, but he says, what do you do? I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. He said, okay, I'll tell you what. You, you go research, and then you tell me what you think I ought to sell this to you for. So I went home, researched, and I came back at the bottom end of fair market value. I said, this is what I can give you, and this it barely fits what I can give. And so, well, actually, so then I called them up just to tell them, you know. Well, he didn't answer the phone. His wife did. And, uh, and so I said, hey, I, I'm the pastor in South Florida that, oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, so what, 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 what did you find? What did you learn? I said, well, here's what I can afford. And I told him. And she goes, okay, it's yours. <laughs> it made me think, if I had asked about 10000 less, I think they would have taken it. <laughs> that was the kind of favor that God gave us. Now, I'm glad I, I paid a fair price for it, okay? But I'm just saying, honestly, that's the Lord. And I, I know Christians who, the same thing, that somehow, because you're a Christian, God gives you favor with this world. Amen? You know what has to frustrate the Democrats and the liberals to no end is through the last four years and the, and the policies and the things that were happening with President Trump, and it seemed like he had favor when they were trying to hurt him. And God just kept blessing this nation. Now, believe me, I'm not saying that President Trump has it all together. None of us do. And there's times where I wince when he texts or he speaks. So I'm not going that far with it. I'm just saying, but isn't it interesting how when you walk with the Lord, God gives you favor. He gave Samuel favor as a little boy. I love this passage, Psalm chapter 1, just the first three verses. It's a very short psalm anyway. I think it's like six verses long, but Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the man, that's the woman who doesn't follow the way of the world, but keeps their nose in the Word of God and only desires to serve the Lord. You get God's favor, and God will give you favor with men. That's awesome. As parents, we need to remind our kids that the real key to having a prosperous life and, the, and, and finding favor in the eyes of both God and man is to do what Samuel did. What did he do? He walked with the Lord, and God blessed him. 
Bottom line, pretty simple. Verse 27, and there came to a man, uh, and there came a man of God to Eli. Now, I wish that the Bible would tell us who this man of God was, but we don't know, and really it doesn't matter. You just need to know he was a man of God. And God used an anonymous man of God to speak to the high priest. That's how our God works. I love that about God. He can take a simple vessel and do wonders with that vessel. Okay? And so verse 27, And said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? The father referred to here is Aaron, okay, who was the first high priest. Since the high priesthood was a hereditary office, Eli was a descendant of Aaron, uh, whom God had revealed himself to. Then verse 28, did I, cho did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. He just outlined there what a priestly duty is, which is pretty cool. Um, verse 29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Now God is nailing Eli with his sin. You have honored your sons above me. And then he tells him how. By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And he's not just talking about the boys, he's talking about Eli. Eli, we know from Scripture, was an overweight high priest. So badly overweight that when word came from the battlefield that his two sons were killed in battle, he fell over backwards, his weight, he couldn't carry, and he fell over back, backwards and broke his neck on the same day that word came that his sons had died. So here through a prophet of God, we don't know who the guy is, God says to Eli, you and your family have a heritage reaching all the way back to Aaron, the very first priest. You were given the privilege to walk with me and stand by me and stand before me and represent me to my people, but you despised it by allowing your sons to sin. You allowed them to get away with sin. You honored them. By doing that, you're honoring them more than you're honoring me. You cared more about them liking you than about what I thought of the situation. And that's the bottom line. And boy, if that's not a problem today with parenting. Parents want to be the best friend of their child. They don't want the child to not like them. So then they disobey God so they can be friends with their child. The very same thing that Eli did. God wants us to honor Him first. The greatest thing you can do for your child is to let them see you putting God first, not them. When, it, when you discipline your child, when you bring action to them, chastising them because you love them, it doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth. Stop worrying about it. They're just a kid. They're going to say, I hate you. Well, okay, go sit in your room. Why? Because in a few hours, they're going to change, or in a few days, or in a few years. They're not going to stay that way, but you be the parent. Don't be another child. They don't need another child in the house with them. They need a parent. Amen? Verse 30, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, 
shall be lightly esteemed. Wow. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Eli, he failed to honor the Lord first. Eric Liddell, remember him? He was Britain's, Britain's great athlete in the 1924 Olympics. He was a runner, and he ran the 400 meter. That was his race. But he learned that the preliminary races for the 400 meter were going to take place uh, on Sunday. And he said, I will not run on, sun, on the Lord's day. I won't do it. And so he didn't get to go through the, try, trying, uh, the tryout of that, the trials of that, and he didn't get that experience. So then it came time for the actual race. And as he was going to the starting blocks, an unknown man slipped up and put a note in his hand. And the note said simply, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he won the race. Isn't that awesome? If only Eli had honored the Lord first. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Now God's giving the judgment because of Eli's sin. I'm going to cut off your strength and your house, your family, your heritage. There will never be an old man. Wow. And believe me, when God makes a promise, He keeps it. That priestly line coming through Eli would not stay very long. He would pass to another line of descendants from Aaron. It wasn't until Solomon's day that this word came true. It was Abiathar who was Eli's relative, who was the high priest. And when Solomon came into power, he deposed Abiathar, and he brought in Zadok to become the high priest. Zadok was from another family line, so God actually did it. Who was, who was Abiathar? That was the great-great-grandson of Eli. It took a little while before God implemented that judgment, but he did implement it. And then God did something else. He said, since you're not going to be around to see that I keep my promise of judgment on your family, I'm going to give a sign to you while you're living that I'll keep that promise. I mean, you talk about God dealing direct and dealing heavy-handed with, with Eli. But see, he's the high priest. To whom much is given, much is required. That those who teach will be they should receive a double honor because they'll have to give account one day to the Lord. Well, he was the teacher. And so, so look what it says here. Verse 32, Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you who I shall not cut off from your, my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes, out to, the, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, that shall come upon you, two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Here's the sign in your lifetime that I'm going to keep that promise. 
Both of them shall die on the same day. You will see that. So the fulfillment of this judgment didn't happen right away, but it did happen. But there was a sign that God gave, even while Eli was still living. Verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So what priest is he talking about? Well, I believe he's speaking of several I think ultimately, speaking of Jesus Christ, okay, he's the great high priest for us, right? That's what Hebrews 7, 12 through 17, write it down if you want to look it up, Hebrews 7, 12 through 17. But it's also, I believe, fulfilled partially in Samuel. Even though Samuel's not from the priestly tribe, so he's not a true priest, but he functions as a priest. So partially, this is, this is uh, Samuel who's effectively replacing the ungodly sons of Eli. But it's also partially fulfilled in Zadok, the one who replaced Abiathar in the days of Solomon because he replaced Eli's family line in the priesthood. But again, Jesus Christ came in the order of a high priest after Melchizedek. And that's where we find in Hebrews 7, 12 through 17. Verse 36, And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please, uh, put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. How fitting that the boys who took what they wanted when they wanted it and they overtaxed the people, taking more meat than they needed. How fitting that God says, now your family will be the ones who are begging for a morsel of bread. And the people, the, the, their lineage that had to suffer at your hands those people will be the ones who have more than enough to eat. This is a, there's so much in, the, in Samuel. So much. I hope tonight it speaks to you. I, you know, I'm looking around the crowd. I don't know how many of you still have children in your home. Maybe none of you. Maybe some of you. But maybe you have children. And maybe this is a great reminder for your children as they raise their kids. That there is a way unto man that seems right, but in the end, it brings forth what? Death. And, and the greatest thing we can... You know, God makes it so simple. Just be obedient. Just trust my word. Walk in, in my truth and see if I will not do my work and use you to do it and bless you while I do it. That's the work of our God. Amen? Amen. And I didn't say there's not going to be trials and tests and setbacks. There will be. But God's with you in those two. You're not alone. Remember he said in the text, Hannah said, He will guard your foot so that you don't slip. Amen. He's faithful. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, tonight we just give you thanks that your word stands forever. Jesus, you said it this way, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. <laughs> and we know that in John chapter 1, it says that you are the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, Lord, we just thank you that what the Old Testament saints only knew in part, we have been completely, it's been revealed to us. It's been opened to us. 
which tells us that that's even more the reason that we walk in confidence and that we share our faith with others and that we stand for Christ in the day that we're in. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave, we would be confident that, God, you honor your promises. And all we have to do is be obedient and walk by faith in them. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight.